videos going. Uh, also, those of you that have kiddos who ask, hey, what was church about? Have fun explaining the virgins today. It's not the main point, but, you know, I'm not going to tell our kids. They're, you know, they're not there yet. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is an interesting one. Um, here's how I want to start this. Amit Nialani actually told me a story last night, and I said, thank you for my sermon opener. Um, so true story, but I want you to imagine yourself in this scenario, a friend of his, and you can verify all the details later because I'll probably get some wrong, but a uh, friend of his I don't know, a number of years ago engaged, and it was his birthday, and his fiance uh, wanted to throw just kind of a big, elaborate party, uh, really bless her fiance. They're excited. They're waiting, uh, watching for their marriage day coming up, and, and they're having a blast, having a party, and she gets up and kind of does a toast, I guess, for, for her fiance, and just saying all these nice things. You know, I love you. I'm excited to get married. The only thing that can make this day better is, like, I just want to be your wife. And somebody else kind of in the crowd stands, well, got a bouquet of flowers here. And somebody else stands up over here. I've got, I've actually got the, the rings right here. And there's a pastor in the well, I'm here. So why don't we just get married? And I guess everybody was in on it except for the, the groom. And they got married right there on, on his birthday. So uh, happy birthday. Right? Like he, he wasn't, you know, could you imagine he wasn't ready for it? And yet, as Amit was telling the story, he's like, but at the end of the day, like, they were ready. They were ready to get married. Yes, logistics, details, all that stuff. Right? There's probably a lesson in there about being flexible, and that's another sermon. But I love that line that he said, yeah, like, they were ready. They were ready to get married. And as I think about this, this passage today, the, the question really is, are we ready? Are you ready for the bridegroom to uh, say, hey, I'm here, let's go? That's what this sermon is about, this passage is about. Um, some context, because this is actually a longer chunk of teaching here. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't particularly like this section of Matthew and of the Gospels for a couple of different reasons. But as I was looking at it the last couple of weeks, like it's a long chunk. We say that the Sermon on the Mount is the, the longest recorded teaching that we have of Jesus. This is, this is close. I mean, it's two solid chapters uh, of his teaching. When the disciples ask him, uh, they say, Jesus, would you tell us when these end things are coming? He's kind of talking about the end of the world type of stuff. And they're like, hey, tell us what's up. Most of the time when his disciples ask the question, Jesus kind of goes, you know, a different route, answers a question with a question, all these things. In some ways, he kind of answers this pretty straight up. Not quite the same as when they say Jesus teaches to pray, you know, as we talked about in the Lord's Prayer. But he, he kind of gives them some, uh, some signs, so to speak. And yet I've always avoided these passages, honestly, for a couple reasons. One, I just am terrified at the thought of eternity. Like, I just, obviously, we're finite beings and the infinite, like, we can't comprehend that. And I can remember as a kid, I mean, panicking at the thought of that. Um, and so, yeah, Alan, amen, you are not alone. If there's anyone else, you're not alone. It, it's just, I'm a mathematical, mine was a math education major, um, analytical, and so, like, I just, it doesn't major, um, analytical, and so, like, I just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. And so even this week, as I was kind of looking at this, like there was some elements of panic and anxiety because I just, I can't comprehend that. So it's like, well, I just won't read those. It doesn't make them go away. They're still there. And that's kind of the point of that. Um, I actually read a book on fear and anxiety and the guy even talked about that. And he's like, you just, just kind of have to ignore that one. And I was like, that doesn't help me. Um, but that's one reason. The other reason is, yeah, as a kid growing up in the church, growing up as a Christ follower for most of my life, um, kind of a older brother, 
type of lifestyle, if you're familiar with the prodigal son story, younger brother just doing all kinds of stupid stuff. Older brother was kind of the, the goody two-shoes. Like, I didn't have a Paul-type conversion. It wasn't like I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and then I come to, like, I kind of just have walked with the Lord most of my life. So I've always wrestled with, at least when I was younger, I wrestled with, like, am I really, like, how has my life really changed that much? I don't know. Now I see great change. I see my sin all the time and all that stuff. But I would always read these afraid that somehow I would miss it, that somehow I would miss Jesus' return, and that I wasn't actually a part of his family. Right? And when you tie that into like, my deep fear of eternity, like, why would I want to read these passages at all? Right? So I just would often avoid these. Um, and yet Jesus has, has met me in that deeply. Um, I've learned to focus a lot more on faithfulness, not focus on perfection. Right? It's his righteousness, not my own. And so I rather enjoyed kind of digging into this and learning some things. But I, I want to share just the context, really, of chapter 24. Jesus gives a, a whole bunch. It would be helpful if you, if you have a Bible. We're not going to put all this on the screen. But if you do have a Bible physically or digitally, Pull that out and just kind of scan over chapter 24. As he talks about, he throws out a couple of different parables, a couple of different, you know, the end of the world is going to be like this and a sign like this. And he just, he's throwing out a, kind of a bunch of different things here. And really, I think there's two main points in chapter 24 that he gives us. One is to not be led astray or not to fall away. In 24 verse 11, 24 verse 24, he says that, hey, don't, you know, be aware of those that are going to lead you astray. Be aware of the things that might cause you to fall away. Don't do that. Stay, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes fixed on my teaching. And then coupled with that, don't be led astray. The second main point is be ready. Be watchful. Be ready because I am coming back. Verse 42, 44, 46, all in chapter 24 there. He's, he's saying you've got to be ready. You've got to stay faithful. Right? And I think 24 verse 44, really is like, to me, that's the summary of, of chapter 24, where he says, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect, right? He gives us all these things about, these are the things that are going to happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. And he actually himself says, I don't even know when it's going to happen, right? Only the Father knows. So this isn't about trying to figure out when. This isn't about trying to discern the times and the seasons and all this and that. Jesus isn't giving them as a, as a map of when. He's giving them the warning of you just need to be ready for whenever it happens, right? And so, you know, Matthew throughout his putting this together, there's a five-fold repetition of the hour is not known. And again, that's what our, our passage today is about. But I love some of the, the commentaries that I was looking at this week. Um, most of the insight I got here is from Klein Snodgrass. So if you're looking for a, a baby name, would recommend. Um, most of the stuff that I got was from him, and he, he brings out this idea. There's this five-fold repetition where Matthew, via Jesus, is just saying over and over again, be ready, be ready. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going to come. You don't know the hour, so be ready. Right? And this made me think, I grew up at, at kind of the peak of the Left Behind series, um, if you're familiar with that. Uh, I read a lot of those Left Behind for Kids books. And like, God bless that. God can use anything and everything, and I'm not trying to knock someone else's life work. I just wonder if either that series or maybe just the way we've interpreted it is just trying to answer the wrong questions. Or at least that's how I read it. Like, oh, okay, this happens in this book, and it's based on the Bible. So, like, what's happening in real life? Well, I read this blog post somewhere. Like, we're just answering the wrong questions. That's not what Jesus is getting at, and that's not, I don't even think, the point of those books. Yes, Jesus answers his disciples when they say, hey, when's this going to happen? But again, he doesn't give them a straight answer, and he, and he says himself, I don't even know when it's going to happen. All right, so here, this is a quote from a commentary. I love this this week. Um, not, from, not from old Klein, but from a different one. He says this, Jesus' sermon on the end of the world is the playground of many earnest Christians, but it can be read straightforwardly 
as Jesus' way of simply saying, it's going to be rough being a Christian, but hold up your heads and hang in there because I'm going to set things right. I love that. I love that he calls it the playground, right? Like we, people have jumped into this, these chapters and tried to come up with all these different things and just missing the point, right? He goes on to say this, and Rachel, in fact, can you actually pull up Matthew 24, 13 to 14? Right, I'll read this and then show you that. He, he gives this mandate and a promise to stick with Jesus to the end. And that as we do, mysteriously, God will see to it that this wonderful news of the kingdom will be heralded in the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to the nations. This is not prophecy belief to help Christians mentally discern the biblical puzzle of the end times. It's just good news for the moral road ahead. Right? And in 24, 13, and 14, that's kind of the... Um, that's kind of the, another one of the main points here I love, where Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so here, here's this, this idea of a mandate and a promise, right, that the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the ones who will be saved will endure to the end. It's kind of, you can, you can read that both ways. And in that, as that happens, Jesus is saying, hey, the gospel is going to go to the whole world. Like, that's the main focus. Don't try to figure out when. Just be faithful and make disciples. That's what he's about. Passage, again, we're looking at today answers that question. You just never know when, so be ready. You never know when. There's a, a fun board game that my brother-in-law got, Allison and I, I don't know, a couple years ago, called Weird Things Humans Search For. And the way that the game works is it gives you, like, the, a prompt of, like, a Google search and then you're supposed to guess what are the, what's the top two uh, ways that that prompt is finished. And then the, there's a card that gives you like the top ten and you get points based on what you guess, whatever. Uh, and so there's some weird things that humans search for. Um, so I thought, I'm going to do that with you never know when. Because we never know when Jesus is coming back. So I looked at that this week. I just typed in you never know when on Google. And I looked at the top however many show up. This is what I found. Um, I'll go from uh, top to bottom. You never know when you're making a memory. You never know when your time is up. You never know when your last day is. Those are kind of thematically appropriate. You never know when the bus is coming. I thought that was interesting. They do have apps for that on campus, but great people watching uh, to see college students uh, break their necks to try to make, make the bus on time if you're looking for something to do. Uh, you never know when your time is up, quotes. Your last day is, quotes. You never know when you're entertaining an angel. Thank you, Christians, for putting that one in there. You never know when your last goodbye is, and you never know when some lunatic. That's all, that's all it said, last one, some lunatic. I was like, that's a good one. People are, people are looking that one up. So you never know when the bridegroom is going to come, and you don't know if you have, your, you have your lamps and the oil ready. So let's actually look at the passage that we have today, 25, 1 to 13. You know, again, this is a parable as we've been looking at. These parables are Jesus' way of announcing the kingdom. And, and really what he does in all these parables that he teaches is he challenges the listeners to make a choice. Are you in or out? This is the way of the kingdom. Are you in or out? So some, some cultural context here with just kind of the, the wedding procession um, of the way it worked, right? A, a, a man would propose to a woman, and he would, okay, we're going to get married, and then great, you go just live your life, get ready, I'll be back. When? Uh, when I'm ready. Uh, and, and then he would go back typically to his father's house and he would build uh, a mansion. There's actually some really cool, like, and, you know, Jesus' return wrapped up in this, but he would build a, a mansion on, in addition to his father's house. Technically, it was an apartment, nice little, nice little uh, in-law suite for the newlywed couple. 
And he would just, as long as that took him, to build a, a house for his bride. And then when everything was ready, he would go and get the bride, and she had to be ready with all the bridesmaids. And there's some other cultural context things. I'm not hitting all of them. But that was kind of the idea here. And, and so these bridesmaids are waiting for the procession to happen. And they're supposed to be ready. They're supposed to have all that they need. They need lamps. They need oil to keep the, the fire burning so that they can keep having the party and enjoy it. And these things would often last for a week. Well, what we see here is uh, there was a delay. There was a delay that happened. And there's a bunch of questions that come up. And one of the things that I noticed with these, this parable in particular is the question of which of these things have allegorical significance and which of them don't. Because one of the things throughout Jesus' parables is there's a lot of significance hidden in the meanings of what he's saying. And I'm the type of person, like, I love studying scripture where there's just a ton of stuff that is kind of hidden there and it gets pulled out, right? Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, just a gift to the body of Christ and how he's able to pull those things out of scripture, the insight that he provides, right? This one, there's just, I don't know, and from my studies this week, looking at commentaries and just my own personal stuff, like, there's just not a whole lot. The point is kind of like, be ready. And I was like, great, I don't know how to stretch that out into 40 minutes. Um, but there's just like certain things in here that would seem, oh, that's got to be significant. Like some questions that came up, like, why do they need lamps? Like, what's the point? You know, because the, the five foolish uh, bridesmaids, they like, they had their lamps, they didn't have oil. Like, why do they have to go and buy oil and miss the whole party? Like, why do they need their lamps? Well, the wedding was at night. It was dark. Like, they just need the lamps. There's nothing significant. They just need light. They just need some flashlights. Um, what about the sleeping? They fell asleep. Like, the, the line at the end of the of the passage. Scroll down to 13, Rachel, please. The line at the end, it just says, watch. And that word just kind of means stay awake. So like, they all fell asleep. Is that a problem? No, it's not a problem. Like, it was a long day. They were waiting. The groom was delayed. Like, they just took a nap. There's no significance to that. Um, what about, this was a good one. Uh, what about, they didn't, the, the five wise virgins chose not to share their oil. Like, what's up with that? Why wouldn't you just give Right? And one of the points that I came across was it, this isn't an ethical parable. It's not about the ethics of sharing or not sharing. That wasn't the point. The point was five of them were ready and five of them were not. Right? So sometimes we have to wade through these different things and just recognize some of the, some of the things that are in the parable. Like we don't need to get tripped up over that. But what about the delay? That was one of the things that I came across that actually said the delay is not to be ignored. In fact, the whole parable is framed on the delay. Like, if there is no delay, then this whole, like, you're not ready, it, it, it loses its effect. So there is a, a point of the delay, and part of the question that kind of came up was, was why the delay? Why did Jesus include this? And this commentary, again, said, a delay, it's required for the lamps to go out, it's required for, to demonstrate the wisdom or the foolishness, but it's not necessarily foreshadowing a specific amount of time. And he doesn't give an amount of time in there, and that's where, again, sometimes we can just read too much into it. That's not the point. But one of the questions, another question that came up was, is this referencing, this delay, is it Jesus' like, first coming, or is it his final return? And the answer really was yes, kind of both of them. Is it Jesus being there right then and there, or is it the final day of the Lord? Yes, it's, it's referring to both. But I want to talk about this day of the Lord a little bit, because this was, this was fun to actually look at. Summary of the day of the Lord that I came across. At the heart of the Christian faith is the expectation that one day God will set things right, that the kingdom will come and that Jesus will be vindicated and will put his dream into effect. Like at the end of the day, that's what we're all longing for. And that's what God's people have been longing for 
literally throughout history. God, this isn't the way the world's supposed to be. When are you going to come? In Egypt, God's people, when are you going to come and set things right? In exile, when are you going to come and set things right? Jesus' disciples all the time, when are you going to take charge and set things right? Here and now today, in our series in Hebrews, right? Throughout history, we've been wondering, when are you going to make things right, Lord? And amen, that's a cry that we ought to make. But the first time that this day of the Lord shows up is actually in the Exodus. It's actually in God's people are in Egypt. They're enslaved. They've been there for 400 years. They have these promises somehow that they're supposed to have their own land, and yet they're just being driven into the ground. The workload is unbearable, and just generations and generations and generations uh, are growing up in Egypt and dying, and growing up and laying bricks and dying. And they're just wondering, what in the world? Well, then comes along Moses. God brings redemption and rescue through Moses, and he leads his people out of Egypt, right? And he crosses over the Red Sea, and uh, Pharaoh's army, who's realizing the economic loss of his entire uh, work population, says, we need to go get them back. And they chase after God's people, who are a couple million strong at this point. And again, God does the miracle of parting the waters of the Red Sea, and Moses leads the people across, and the Egyptian army's coming, and the waters crash back down on them, and there's this huge party for the Israelites, for God's people, as they make it to the other side, and the Egyptian army drowns in the Red Sea. And there is when this, this word, this phrase for the day first shows up. This day of rescue, this day of freedom, this day of rejoicing. And there's this huge celebration and Moses sings or writes this poem or song and the women are dancing with all these musical instruments. And it's a huge party because the day of their freedom has finally come. Their day of their rescue, the day of, at least at the time, what looks like things are finally going to get set right. And I've been reading in Isaiah lately, and Isaiah's writing to the people of God as they are about to, and then eventually in exile, and there's the same kind of thing of just, God, when are you going to come and make things right? And a lot of Isaiah is about judgment, and it's really kind of depressing, and I don't know why I'm really reading it, but, but there's hope embedded in there. There's promise of redemption and rescue embedded in there. And again, this reminds me of our series in Hebrews that we just wrapped up, right? That life is hard, that there's a lot of pain we're called to have joy, and I love how Obad just phrased that this morning, that it's not necessarily a requirement, but it is a consequence as we walk with Jesus. And, it, and it's not this, just be happy, it's fine, like, none of that. Sometimes it's not fine, and yet how do I still have joy in the midst of that? This is a hard thing, and yet faithfulness, as Pastor Scott said so many times throughout Hebrews, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. It's just showing up. It's a stance of faith, no doubt, but it is the view that, that the world doesn't get the last word. Jesus one day does get the last word. Let's be ready for that. Let's be excited for that. And that is, at the end of the day, in this passage, why one group got in to the party and one group didn't. It's in, uh, oh, where is it here, verse, yeah, verse 10. While they, the, uh, the foolish virgins, were going to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in. Like, that's, that's the qualification that we get, those who were ready. Those who were ready. And this, yeah, this makes me think of the Christmas story, right? Uh, one of my favorite, I would even say one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's a kid's movie. It's called The Star, animated movie about the, the Christmas story. Have any of you seen this? With Okay, it's couple of you. Uh, would definitely recommend this. More than I would recommend Snodgrass as a child's name, I would recommend this movie. 
Uh, it's, a, it's an animated movie of the nativity, but it's from the animal's perspective. And so there's some big names in it. And yeah, it's really, it's really funny. And they actually do a really good job. Like I've seen, you know, I've seen some Christmas movies that are like, you are not even close to like what Jesus and all that stuff. This is actually pretty good uh, from the animal. Obviously, the animals can't talk, so they, you know, they kind of missed on that one. But um, great movie. And as we were watching it, you know, we watched it this week because um, it was my choice for family movie. So I picked that one. And uh, watching the different characters of the Christmas story, like none of them knew what was happening. None of them had any idea what was coming. Right? Mary, no idea. Angel shows up in her room, right? Like, no big deal. Uh, then she tells Joseph the news, right? That's a whole other sermon for another day, right? And he's like, uh, I don't think that's how it works. And she's like, no, but this time, this is the one time it actually, right? And then Angel comes and talks to him, and he's, you know, freaking out. And then the shepherds, right? And even the wise men, like, you know, you could make a case that maybe they knew what they were looking for, but they had no idea what they were looking for, right? None of these people knew. And yet, somehow, they were all ready. They were all ready to respond when this happened, just doing everyday, mundane, ordinary things. All right, even when the shepherds, like the angels come to them, they weren't like, wait, what savior? I don't know what you're talking about. Like they, they had some kind of understanding. They knew some sense that there was supposed to be this rescuer coming. And so they didn't know when, but that wasn't the point. They were just ready and they responded when they saw God do something redemptive. But, but don't miss... Don't, we don't have to make it something bigger than it was. Like, they were just tending sheep. They're just doing their job. Faithful every day, day after day, one foot in front of the other, as hard as that would be. So the question becomes, okay, well, how? How do we actually get ready? What, what does that look like? And so the word, the word for ready there is rooted actually in a word that we get for fitness, which I was excited about because I like sport analogies. So I, like, I can't avoid this one. This is great. You get to use the sport analogy here for fitness. Those who were ready, those who were fit, those who had been working out, so to speak, right? And so what does it mean to, to be fit? What is the point of fitness? What is the point of, of working out? Well, I actually heard uh, a math teacher one time answer the question of, when am I ever going to use this? Has anybody ever asked that about math in real life? When am I ever going to use this? Only one person has ever asked that in real life? Okay, thank you. Right? I was a math education major. You're not going to fool me. I know people think math is dumb and you don't use it in real life, right? which you're wrong, for one, because um, math is awesome, and you do use it in real life. Okay? And, but this teacher, was, he was making the point. of He, he was saying, yes, by and large, like, you're not going to use some of the crazy math stuff in the real world, right? unless that's your job. right? You work in finance or you work in something like that. You're not really going to use it. But here's the point that he said, and he equated it to working out. He's like, the reason you go into the to a gym and you work out is not so that if somebody happens to stop you on the side of a street, push you on the ground and throw a barbell on your chest, you better be able to lift it up. Like that's not the point. You don't work out for that purpose. You work out so that you can do the things you need to do in life, that you can play with your kids, that you can be healthy, that you can do whatever it is. He's like, math is the same thing. Nobody's going to stop you on the side of the street and give you some, some math problem of what's the slope of this. Like the point is that you figure out how to problem solve in your mind. And you figure out how to analyze things. And you figure out how to isolate what the actual problem is and find the solution without getting bogged down in the rest. It's mental gymnastics that just help your problem-solving skills. right? And I was listening to this like, amen, bro, preach that, because I love math. So the whole point here is fitness, whether it's math or working out or whatever it is, is about preparation. It's not, about the, it's not necessarily about the actual activity itself. It's about preparation for something else. It's about getting ready. 
and most important in working out or in math is repetition. Repetition over and over and over again, right? It's just showing up. Doesn't always necessarily mean it's your best performance or maxing out or whatever it is. It, it's just showing up. And I was a, a college athlete a long time ago now, actually. Um, and I remember as a college athlete, we would do these crazy, stupid workouts for hours and hours and hours at all hours of the morning and night. And it was foolishness. Um, and in the last like 10, 12 years since I finished, I've just been wrestling with like, oh, I'm not where I used to be. And just been perpetually trying to get back into it. There's actually a conversation I had with Ani. Nelson, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, that brought great freedom in my life, so thank you, Ani, where, uh, who was also a college athlete, and she was telling me, she was like, you know, the thing is, all of us retired athletes, like, we think that our workouts have to be for two hours every day, and we have to be basically dying by the end of it, when in reality, she used the word average, which I didn't totally appreciate, but it's fine, the average adult just needs, like, 20 minutes of elevated heart rate a day, and I was like, oh, man, thanks so much. That was like so freeing because I don't have to do the crazy stuff anymore. Like I just need 20 minutes. Sometimes preparation, spiritual fitness, it, it doesn't have to be the longest or craziest or most in-depth or most insightful time in God's word that you've ever had or the most emotional time of prayer. Or what, sometimes it's just showing up for five minutes, for 10 minutes a day, right? Like imagine five, 10 minutes a day in God's word for the next decades of your life, right? That'll stack up and you'll start to see fruit from that. So sometimes that's what it is. So how do we prepare ourselves? There's four things that came to mind over this week as I was looking at this. Four things of how to prepare ourselves, how to get fit, if you will. I didn't even think about the timing going to the new year. Man, that works really well, New Year's resolution here. First one is confession. Confession. Um, confession ultimately to the Lord, right, to, to confess our sins. And this is one, this is the way into the party, so to speak, at the uh, at the outset, right, to recognize that I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm jacked up, my best intentions fall way short of God's glory. And honestly, entrance into the kingdom is, is, is not a, an admission uh, or not a commitment to be perfect. It's not a promise to never sin again. It's actually an admission that I'm going to keep doing that, not perfect. I'm going to keep sinning over and over. Now, I'm not going to try to, but that's just what's going to happen because that's, that's where I'm at. And Jesus says, yeah, I see that. I paid for it on the cross. I paid for it. Your sins are forgiven. First John 1, 9, when we confess with our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. That's the, that's the entrance in at the beginning. But then even when our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, right, we, we still do sin even in relationship with God, so we just need to own that, right? That, that doesn't affect our relationship status. That's secure, but it affects our fellowship. It affects the ongoing harmony of the relationship, right? So like if I were to if I were to leave the house this morning, I didn't do this, at least not to my knowledge. Allison, you can correct me. But if I were to leave the house this morning and say something unkind to my wife or my kids, right, I couldn't just show up later today after community meal and then say, hey, so like, hey, what's for dinner? Right? Like, I would need, now, we're still married, but I would need to address that. Our, our fellowship would be hindered. I would need to just say, oh, yeah, I was, that was dumb. I'm really sorry that I did that. Would you forgive me? Same kind of idea with the Lord. Right? Every time we sin, our relationship doesn't break. Jesus already took care of that. But our fellowship, the ongoing harmony of that, right? our confession of sin, that's what keeps that going. We're not, we're not getting more forgiveness. Right? When I confess something to the Lord after he's already forgiven me, I'm not getting more forgiveness. I'm being reminded of the forgiveness that's already mine, which then spurs me to trust him more next time. Right? So we need to confess to the Lord 
And we need to keep short accounts in doing that, right? Don't delay. Don't just think, well, this sin's no big deal. Like, it's fine. It's not going to harm anybody. It's just a little thing on the side. Like, no, one, God sees all. And two, it is foolish. And I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody. It's foolish to presume that our sin is not going to have ripple effects, right? And to just, to just think it's no big deal. I, you know, I'll, okay, tomorrow. I promise tomorrow, Lord, I'll stop tomorrow. This is the last time, right? How many, how many times have I ever said that? How many times have you said that? Don't wait. Don't delay in confession and in having short accounts with the Lord. I remember meeting with a, a lacrosse player one time on campus. You know, we work in athletic ministry at Rutgers. And I remember meeting with this lacrosse player. He was a senior. Grew up in a, in a spiritual home, grew up in a Catholic church, was an altar boy, was super involved. Uh, most of his family had actually gone to Notre Dame. And uh, his, his intent was to come and get plugged into a church and a, and a local campus ministry where he could grow in his faith. And um, he was a senior when he and I were meeting, and he was telling me this story. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just, fall semester, which kind of, yeah, just kind of got wrapped up in all the things. And I kept telling myself, ah, next weekend, I'll, I'll go to church. There's one right there on campus. I'll go next weekend, right there on campus. And then the next weekend, oh, okay, well, next weekend. Oh, well, next weekend. And he's sitting across from me as a senior, and he literally says, next weekend has never come. And I was like, well, bro, I'm glad you're sitting here now, but that's a sobering, sobering thing. We can do that. I can do that. Don't fall into that next week. I'll, I'll confess it tomorrow. It's fine. Right? Keep short accounts with the Lord. I love this. Uh, one of my favorite bands, 10th Avenue North, uh, they have this, this one song. I think it's called I Confess. And there's a line in the refrain uh, that is just beautiful where the singer is kind of talking about confession and talking about I, need, I know I need to confess. I know I need to come back. And this is what he, what he says. Love the beautiful picture of relationship with the Lord and intimacy there. From his perspective, he's singing to the Lord, and he says, I don't want to look in a stranger's eyes when I come into this place. I want to grow familiar with the lines, the lines upon your face. I, love, I mean, what a beautiful, intimate picture of coming to the Lord face to face and confessing our sin. He's saying, I don't want to let so much time go by before I confess my sin that I don't even recognize your face I want to I want to I want to have FaceTime with you so much that I recognize the lines on your face that I can see that that I'm not surprised. Right? And I think there's even something to be said about when that day finally comes and the bridegroom the groom comes to to take us with him that we wouldn't be surprised. Oh, that's what he that I mean no we don't know actually what Jesus looked like uh, in great detail, but there that there's this element of my heart is familiar with the lines on his face. And even, and I'm a huge proponent of this, especially as we have more kind of images uh, around maybe the holiday time of ethnically accurate depictions of Jesus, right? I don't want to be super shocked either when I show up in heaven, like, oh, you, you don't look like what I'm used to seeing, your skin tone, and right? Like, I think that's super important. Would we grow familiar with the lines on his face? So confess to the Lord, and then we need to confess to each other too, right? First John 1 talks about confessing to the Lord to, to be forgiven. James 5 says, confess to one another that you would be healed. This is where growth actually happens. We actually experience healing by walking in the light and sharing it with other people. Good friend of mine, another guy on our staff, actually, his name's Reggie Green, talks a lot about most of the time when we talk about vulnerability, we share like 97% of the, the grossness in our, in our hearts. And he often reminds me, but really, it's that last 3% that I got to have somebody in my life that they know about, that, that knows about it. That last, and that's a scary last 3%. I don't know what that 3% is for you that you want to hide and cover up, but it's scary for me. I don't want to share that with anybody. 
But I got to have somebody that knows about it, somebody that I can confess to. Why? So I can be, be healed, right? That's one way to be ready, confession. Uh, secondly is lament. And, and if confession is kind of an individual type of thing, lament is more of a corporate type of thing, right? That we would lament the brokenness of this world. And in doing that, it actually does lead to a joy, right? That, I, that when I lament and think this world is broken, it's not how it's supposed to be, it also reminds me that this world is as bad as it gets. Like, it is bad. It is broken. There's a lot of pain. I know some of the things that you all have gone through, the things that I've gone through. It's bad. It's, it's, it's hard. But it is as bad as it gets. And that gives me hope. And as I've grown in, in learning how to do that, still very much trying to figure out the, the lament rhythm it's actually given me an excitement in the times of fear and panic about, uh, about eternity that I experience in life. When I remember that this is as hard as it's going to get, there is a longing of, oh, Lord, I just, I can't wait to get out of this body, of this life, of this world, because it's so hard. It's not how it should be, right? And so lament as a corporate community, as a nation, as a church, that's one way to be ready. So confession, lament, uh, thirdly, prudence. This word prudence shows up all over the, the Old Testament, especially in the Proverbs. Uh, the Proverbs are just chock full of this idea of wisdom and prudence. And I love how Pete Scazzaro, who we've learned a lot from, uh, defines prudence. He says in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, prudence is the foresight to take everything into account. Prudent people think ahead, giving careful thought to the long-term implications of their decisions. And there, like, there's just a, life has a lot of things going on all the time. I, I remember thinking, like, oh, when I get to this one place, like, life will just kind of settle down and it'll be great. And like, that's a lie. It's just not true. And I, I would imagine most of you have experienced this. There's a lot of things. You know, there's a lot to take into account. How do I do that? How do I? I'm not a detail person. Like, I'm a vision, big picture, like long term kind of thing. That's how I even in how I lead our. Uh, ministry team, like I, I ask our team all the time, what details am I missing? Because here's where I want to get to, but I don't know how to do that from A to B. Like you tell me, I'm not a detail person. So this is hard. How do we have prudence? One, it's slowing down, right? And just taking a breath and thinking through a decision. But secondly, Scazzaro talks about, you just have to pray for it. Like it's a gift, which honestly is a good thing, right? If it's a gift, that means I can just ask Jesus and say, God, you got to give me prudence in this. So I regularly pray for prudence because I'm just going to miss stuff. I'm going to miss details. And so pray for this. Pray for prudence. Making a plan is not unbiblical. Again, that's what we even see with these five wise virgins, that they had a plan. They had extra oil. Now, did that probably take some extra work? Yeah, they had to get whatever they carry their oil in. And they had to make sure they went and got it earlier in the day at some point before they were supposed to be where they're supposed to be. They had to make a plan to go and get what they needed to get so that they were ready but I'd say it worked out pretty good for them in the long run that they took the time to do that, that they had prudence. So making a plan is not unbiblical. Now, God can and often does throw a wrench in our plans, and that's where we have to trust him, and there's probably books written about that somewhere. But the idea of making a plan, we, don't, we might not know when it's going to happen. And again, that's not the point of this parable. We didn't, they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, but they knew he was, and so they were prudent, and they chose to be ready. What does it look like for you to Take time to be prudent, whether it's planning out your week or planning out your day or looking ahead to next year, whatever it is, and then saying, all right, God, here's my plans. I'm going to surrender them to you. And then lastly, and, and this is where I think prudence actually comes in, the fourth one is uh, how to be ready is a rule of life. We, we talk about this a lot from 
this pulpit. We've talked about it throughout discipleship courses that we just wrapped up two, three weeks ago, where the idea of a rule of life is it's not about rules, right? We're not talking works-based righteousness. It's this idea that I want to grow. I want to be fruitful, just like a, a grapevine or a, a tomato plant. But in order for that to happen, that fruit, that plant has got to get up off the ground. So we need to create a structure on which that plant can grow so that there is fruit to be produced. And that's the idea of a, a rule of life. It's a structure. It's sitting down in a time where I can be clear-minded, where I can spend slow time with the Lord and say, God, what do you have for me for the season ahead? How do I want to make sure I have the right rhythms in place so that I stay connected to you, that I abide in you, that I ready myself for whatever it is that you have, whether it's smaller things in life or your return in the end of all things? How do I ready myself? A rule of life helps create a structure so that I can do the things that I actually want to do. And so in the moment when I get to it and there's a decision to make, well, no, I've already decided I'm going to do this. I'm not going to let the tyranny of the urgent take over. I've already decided I'm going to do this, right? If one of those things is to spend time with God every day, it's helpful probably to pick a time of day. For me, it's often in the morning. And like, that's, it's a done deal. Like, that's just going to happen. So if I stay up super late at night, and I know I'm going to be tired, the question of like, I don't know. No, I've already, I'm already doing this. I'm just going to have to deal with it, that I'm tired. But I've already said this is going to happen. I don't let what I want in the moment. Uh, I don't, I don't, let that overcome what I really, really want. And so this idea of rule of life, just helpful. We're a couple weeks out, like I said, from having finished discipleship course. Maybe it's time to revisit that. Whatever, I'm hopeful that most discipleship courses talked about a rule of life in the last session. Time to maybe revisit that. How's it going? I don't even remember what I put on mine, actually, to be honest, um, as it related to our discipleship course. But maybe revisit that. How's it going? Evaluate a little bit. Even as we come up on, on a new year and New Year's resolutions, right? I'm not a, I don't think those things are unbiblical. How do you set yourself up well to be ready? There's three categories that I would offer that I often think of, of my life through. Solitude, community, and ministry. These three are just a grid through which I often view the world and view life, and that helps me kind of evaluate and plan for my readiness. Solitude, community, ministry. Solitude, it's just spending time with God alone in his word. I love how uh, author and teacher Jen Wilkin puts it, uh, that time with God is not necessarily a withdrawal, like it's not going up to an ATM and getting something out. Yes, there are times where God has stuff for us in the word. Absolutely, I'm not saying that. But she says we need to think of it more as a deposit, putting it in the bank so that when the time comes, when I'm faced with a decision, right, the Holy Spirit can go and grab the truth that I read earlier this morning or yesterday or last week or last year and say, here you go, here's what you need. That's when the withdrawal happens. Time with God and solitude is so often just making deposits so that I can be ready when the time comes. So what's your rhythm of solitude look like? Again, five, 10 minutes a day for the rest of your life, that'll change a life, right? So four of those, I'm getting lots of little sub points here. I'd love to see your notes walking through this. You can see mine. Um, four kind of rhythms of solitude daily, weekly in terms of a, a Sabbath rhythm, a day of rest, a day of joy to connect with God. Monthly, is there some type of, and, and I get everybody's work rhythms are, are different, but is there some type of uh, extended time with God you can have on a, on a monthly basis. For our job, it's, we have to, it's a requirement, but we, we spend a half day, at least a half day with the Lord once a month. That's a joy. Like, we look forward to that, where we're working by sitting in a Starbucks and reading God's Word and spending time with Him and going on a prayer walk, right? What does it look like for you to carve out, even if it's a couple of hours on a monthly basis, to have a day like that with the Lord. And then yearly, some type of retreat. That's something I have not really gotten to that place yet. 
Um, but yeah, some type of couple of days worth where you just spend time with God, spend time with people, enjoy, you know, you can call that a vacation, I suppose, but to give an intentional focus towards solitude time with God, right? So I would offer those as some things to think about. Solitude, community. Who's in your life that can encourage and challenge you to keep putting one foot in front of the other? And and vice versa, right? Who can you encourage and challenge uh, in terms of community? People in this room, people in your neighborhood, other people in God's family. That's kind of internally focused in terms of the church. And then lastly, ministry. That's the kind of outward focus, right? Who can you love, serve, offer the hope of the gospel to as we talk about what does that look like? And this really is the point of the delay in this parable, that the delay of Jesus' return is filled with the mission of the church. While we're waiting, right, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, and, and I don't know, I guess maybe this is where some people would say, see, they fell asleep. That's a bad thing. Again, I think that's reading too much into it. But for us, may we not fall asleep, right? May we, in the midst of the delay between Jesus' ascension and his coming back, like, might we be on mission? Might we go and serve and minister and love and listen and invite people to church and community meal and go over to their house and bring food? And that's the point of the delay is that it would be filled with the mission. So the question to consider is how am I, and for you to ask, how are you not being watchful? If that's the point, verse 13, watch because you don't know when it's coming. How are you not being watchful? That's the question to take away. Here's the image I want to leave you with in... uh, to go back actually to the Exodus. Rachel, could you put up that Exodus 15 now? This is a, I, I got this insight from, I mean, I got all this insight from somebody else, so none of this is, you know, uh, original here. But I got this insight from a woman named Beth Guckenberger, who leads a ministry called Back to Back Ministries. Um, they do international adoptions and all kinds of really, really cool stuff, and she pointed this out a couple years ago at a, at a conference. So I mentioned the day of the Lord in, in Exodus 15, where they, people of God leave their enslavement, they leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea on dry land, the Egyptian army chases after them, the waters fall on top of them, and they drown, and they're free. And Moses writes this beautiful song and poem of praise to the Lord, and then it says this, his, his sister, um, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. I actually meant to look if, to ask if there was a tambourine up here. I don't see one. Probably better that I don't touch any musical instruments. But I want you to picture this tambourine. This is, I love this. Um, and the point here isn't just like, you know, so just bring your tambourine around and like happy and dance and everything's great, right? This isn't trite, like just the hard stuff is no big deal. Sometimes it's really hard to grab that tambourine. But think about the context of this, right? They've been enslaved for 400 years. And I would imagine probably early on, there was this like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like, this is crazy. So, you know, this is a probably turn around pretty quick. A couple generations go by, like, oh man, when are we going to get out of this? It's getting worse. A couple more generations go by, 400 years. And now there's whispers of this guy, Moses, but he killed the guy. Like, there's no way that he's not, that guy's not the, the one that's going to lead us out of here. Like, and then all of a sudden, these weird, crazy things start happening. The, the ten plagues, if you've heard of those. If not, check out, check out the early chapters of Exodus, right? Crazy stuff. And now may, maybe there's little whispers here and there. God's up to something. Like something's got to be happening. Maybe we're actually going to get out of here. I don't know. But in the meantime, like Moses seems like he's making it worse. Like this is crazy. And all of a sudden, the last plague happens, and everybody pulls out their smartphone and sees on Twitter that they're free. No, right? <laughs> Rumors start going around throughout 
throughout the Israelite villages. Hey, guys, we're free. Like, we can actually, we got, we're free. We can go. But we got to go right now. You got to go right now. You don't have time to pack up everything. Like, we, we got to go. This is it. We just got to go. What would all, be all the things that you would bring? These women chose to grab their tools of worship, their, object, their, their objects of music, so that when they got out, they could make sure that they could still praise and worship God with music and dancing. That's wild to me. Doesn't make any kind of sense. Like you're just in a scramble and you just got to grab what you can grab. The only explanation that comes to my mind is that this was just a normal part of their everyday life. This was just a rhythm. I don't think they stood at the back of the door of their house and like, let's see, what did I forget? Should I get anything? Like, oh, the tambourine? Yeah, okay, I'll grab that. Like it just had to be a normal rhythm of their daily life to use that, to use that tambourine, quite possibly for solitude, community, and ministry, like somehow to abide in God, to worship still in the midst of really hard things, day after day, making bricks, enslaved, hoping to protect their young ones from being murdered at the hands of Pharaoh. This just had to be a part of what they did with their life. And so that when it was time to go and the rumors started going around, we're free, there just wasn't even a thought. I'm just grabbing my tambourine, let's go. And so living as a wise human being means being prepared for God's reign. Readiness is an attitude, a commitment, a lifestyle. That had to be the way that these women were living their life. What a model and a picture. Again, not in a trite, just grab your tambourine and it's fine. No, life is hard. Because even after this, yes, they were ready for this moment in the mundane faithfulness of life and in bondage and enemy territory, wondering and waiting and watching, hoping that that day would come. And it did, and they were ready. But then what did they do right after this? They grumbled and complained and they wandered and they wondered and they stumbled around the desert. But they had their tools of worship. Just like the shepherds responded when they saw God move in a redemptive way, they were ready. They were ready. And we're gonna keep wandering and waiting and watching and looking forward. But the question is, what do you need to do to grab your tambourine and bring that along with you? Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for, uh, yeah, just the encouragement to my own heart. This week, Lord, thanks for bringing me to these passages, God, which have often uh, not been my favorite, Lord, but thanks for the reminder to be ready, to be, uh, yeah, to be prepared, to, uh, to not lose heart, to watch and be alert. Lord, so would you help us do that? God, would you show each of us uh, individually and together as a church, as a body, as a part of your family, what it looks like for us to be ready, to look forward with joy, with anticipation in the midst of all the hard things uh, of your coming, of your return. Jesus, so remind us of these things. God, give us prudence, we pray, for that gift. Help us confess and keep short accounts with you. Lord, move us to lament and then help us uh, by your spirit create the structure needed so that we can abide in you, that can, we can remain in you. Lord, so thanks for the wisdom of these five virgins, God, will we uh, follow suit that we would be ready and walk closely with you until that day, uh, Lord, which we look forward to and long for. In Jesus' name, amen.